This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Now is the time when dead wheat heads start appearing around wheat fields as the grain is filled. These dead white heads can be in small patches scattered throughout the field or covering entire areas. In some cases, it's just a few spikelets on the head that are white, or it could be the entire head. As what is assumed, these are all kinds of reasons for white head and wheat, including insects, disease, and environment. The following information is from K-State Agronomy Update from our state wheat specialists, Dr. Romulo Lulato, Dr. Eric DeWolf, and Dr. Kelsey Anderson. In many years, one very common cause of whiteheads and missing spikelets is freeze damage. If the freeze happens in an early heading stage, part of the head could be killed or twisted. If there is an earlier freeze and the crown is damaged, some of the tillers can die, but still the form heads are white. However, I don't expect either of these situations to be true this year or in this area. While it got real cold in February and an odd late frost in April, neither likely affected the wheat. The soil temperature stayed stable enough in February, and it didn't get cold enough for long enough in April to hurt the wheat head that was still in the boot at that time. Another weather event that we see affect the wheat from time to time every year is hail. Since hail is rarely widespread, it just depends on what sort of storms the field saw during the heading and grain fill. A hail impact can smack a wee head and kill just that part of the head. The damaged part of the head turns white, and often, spikelets fall off after a few days. Along with hail that storms bring, they also bring flooding. Areas of flooded fields where wheat roots stand in water for a few days will end up dying. Logically, this will follow the terrace channels, waterways, and field edges. How this affect yields depends on how far along the grain fill was before the plant died. When there is rainy weather during flowering, much like this year, some heads can get infected with the Fusarium head blight, also known as head scab. This fungal disease can affect a few spikelets, or the entire portion of the head. The way to differentiate this issue is that the fungus creates a pink or orange fungal mass on the infected spikelet surface. Later, after the grain is filled, those kernels will be shriveled and lightweight. Fusarium head blight is also the fungus that produces vomitoxin, which, as farmers know, can be a real problem in some years. Just the presence of Fusarium, though, doesn't automatically mean vomitoxin, and the levels of the chemical can vary greatly. As far as insects go, there is a wheat stem maggot that is common and can kill individual tillers. Usually, though, there is not enough of them to have any sort of effect on yield. If there are any questions on unexpected dead white wheat heads in fields, or troubles areas within the field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. Across the Wildcat Extension District, Cerisia lespedeza is in a vegetative growth state and rapidly growing. By the end of June, plants will begin to branch and become even woodier. These plants are a major problem in rangelands and pastures across the state. It is a state nauseous weed and therefore needs to be managed. It has a tremendous seed bank that helps reestablish stands. Identification is an important first step before initiating a control program. 
Cerecia lespidiza is a perennial legume with three leaves on the end of each stem. The leaves are club or wedged shapes. Plants are usually about three foot tall, but can grow several feet in height under ideal conditions. Plants will start to bloom in August with a white to cream colored flowers with a purple throat. Most seed production occurs in September. Cerecia lespidiza is commonly confused with slender lespidiza. You can tell the difference by looking at the back of the leaf. Cerecia has straight veins and slender has curvy veins. The bloom time is also different. Slender lespidiza blooms in May through September, while Cerecia blooms August through October. There aren't any silver bullet controls for this invasive weed. Heavy grazing, well-timed prescribed burns, and herbicide applications after mowing can help with management. There are several herbicide options that can be considered. To be effective, and this is especially important with spot spraying, the plant must be covered with solution, but not to the point the solution drips from the plant. Initial treatments should reduce dense stands to the point where spot treatments can be used in future years. Herbicide treatments will need to be repeated every two to four years to keep this invasive species in check. Left untreated, Cerecia lespidiza will dominate a site, greatly reducing forage production and species diversity. The presence in hay meadows is concerning, but does not make the hay unharvestable. If the hay is cut before the Cerecia lespidiza begins budding, it can be hayed. The tannins that make Cerecia unpalatable break down as the material dries, resulting in higher quality hay. Reports indicate that cattle readily consume the Cerecia lespidiza as hay. Harvest the hay by mid-July, and about six weeks later, if the Cerecia lespidiza is actively growing, apply a half rate of an improved and labeled herbicide following label instructions. Be persistent with control efforts of this invasive species at manageable populations. I can help you with herbicide timing and application rates that can work best for you. To help gain control on your pasture or rangeland, consider checking with the County Nauseous Weed Department for possible discounted rates on herbicides. For more information, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension Visit 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is the David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Wildlife damage problems can be prevented with good management. The primary aim should be to prevent damage from occurring. When it does occur, each problem should be studied individually. The best wildlife damage management program is based on the following principles. Most of the damage is caused by relatively few individuals, not by all of them. When this individual or individuals is removed, damage will stop and the people who experience the problem are in the best position to locate the animal and reduce losses promptly. Changes in management of the property being damaged may be needed to prevent further loss or a reoccurrence of loss at a later time. Considerable damage from wild animals occurs directly to crops and livestock 
and as a health problem to man and domestic animals. Nearly all wild animals in Kansas are native and they provide equilibrium to the environment. Managing only the species considered to be good or endangered is not recommended. Sometimes animals considered to be beneficial can be equally damaging, such as deer in an orchard, squirrels in a pecan grove, or muskrats in a pond dike. In reality, any animal can be either good or bad, depending on the situation. Populations fluctuate due to environmental influences. Animals change normal population parameters to recover from the loss of individuals. Because of these responses, control efforts will be less effective. In good habitat, animal populations respond to removal with increased birth rate, decreased mortality, and decreased immigration. Changes in mortality, birth, and dispersal rates occur in response to decreased density. Species that reproduce seasonally exhibit an annual cycle. During the reproductive period, births normally exceed deaths and the population increases. When reproduction ceases, mortality exceeds recruitment and the population declines until the next breeding season. A population change of two to five-fold is not uncommon during an average animal cycle. Factors that affect this pattern include immigration, adverse weather, and habitat disruption. The cycle is most pronounced in species that produce only one litter per year. Wildlife damage also fluctuates with cycles. Damage is seldom a problem when populations are low. During peak years, damage may become severe and require frequent intensive control efforts. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Srantz with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. With the chance of frosts past and new plants going into the landscape, it's important to consider the climate extremes that your plant can tolerate before putting it in the ground. The primary map used to determine the suitability of a plant for an area is the USDA Hardiness Zone map. This shows the average minimum temperature in our area each winter. Plants rated as suitable for Zone 6B should survive our average minimum temperature with no damage, but this is not always guaranteed. The minimum temperature in a given year could be lower than the average like it was back in February. For this reason, always exercise caution when planting species that are on the edge of our range. Mimosa trees, for example, are suitable from Zones 6 to 10, but if hit by cold below the average could be killed, as we are currently seeing. Leaving a little bit of wiggle room in the cold that your plant can tolerate will make it more likely that you won't have to replace the plant prematurely. The concept of cold hardiness only applies to perennials, plants that return in future growing seasons. Annuals, especially flowers, usually aren't sold on the basis of their cold hardiness since they will die off after a year anyway. Many herbaceous perennials like hostas and daylilies will die back to the ground in cold but this is not the complete death of the plant, and should instead be viewed in the same way as a tree dropping its leaves. 
Some naturally perennial plants are traditionally grown as annuals in places that get too cold. Depending on the range of zones these perennials can successfully grow in, these plants could survive thanks to their microclimate, or be grown as perennials in containers when the temperature drops too low and brought inside. Microclimate is the weather and atmosphere immediately above the ground, and there are several strategies to keep cold-sensitive plants warmer in the winter. The first and easiest step is to position these plants on the south and west sides of your home. These will get the most sun exposure, and the closer these plants are to a wall, window, or foundation, the more light and heat will be reflected back towards the plant, keeping it warmer. Avoid planting in low spots, as these will gather cold air and wind more than high spots will. Finally, mulch the plants. This will keep the soil warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. The American Horticulture Society has a map similar to hardiness zones, but for summer heat. This map measures the average number of days with a high above 86. Kansas will fall into zone 7 or 8, showing that somewhere between 60 and 90 days in a year will have a temperature above 86. This information will not be as readily available when buying plants as the USDA's hardiness zones, as it is a relatively new creation. Keep in mind that every microclimate trick used for keeping cold-sensitive plants warm will also keep heat-sensitive plants warm and could lead to their death. In both heat and cold tolerance, it is best to split straight down the middle so as to not freeze one and fry the other. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.